Good morning and happy Mother's Day. It's so good to see all of you and uh, to be able to worship together with you this morning. Um, see many guests and uh, as we do each week, I just want to uh, say good morning to you and welcome and we're so thankful um, that you would trust us to come and worship uh, together with us and uh, what a joy it is to be able to be together um, this morning. And uh, my name is Ryan. If I haven't had a chance to ever meet you before, I would love an opportunity to do that at the end of the, the service this morning. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And we are in a study in the book of Hebrews. We're going to uh, pick up in uh, Hebrews chapter 3 this morning um, and uh, continue on where we have been for the last uh, couple of weeks. And just as a, a way of reminder for all of you who are guests um, and uh, perhaps others that uh, aren't guests but just um, quickly forget, uh, which is, uh, happens. Um, in Hebrews, this letter is written to a group of people, uh, a, a group of Christians, um, Jewish Christians, that it's believed more than likely a small church plant or perhaps a house church uh, in Rome. And they are, um, because of the context that they're living in. They are dealing with all of the hardships and the challenges, not only of just being believers that we could all in some ways relate to, but beyond that, believers, uh, a small group of believers isolated in a foreign city uh, where persecution is constantly a part of their daily life. And as a result of that persecution and the challenges that they are facing, uh, because of their Judaism and their sort of their heritage and what they were raised in, what they grew up in, um, they are reverting back a little bit. They're falling into some old habits. And so we don't know exactly who the author of this letter is, but this letter was written to these Jewish Christians so that they might be sort of solidified, be strengthened in their faith and be reminded of who they are. Um, I am reminded of uh, the famous uh, theologian Mike Tyson, who once said, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And when you get punched in the mouth, that plan sort of falls away. And what happens, what's he alluding to there is whatever is habit, whatever is sort of is maybe routine for us, that's what we very often default to in moments of stress. This is why our military personnel, if you've ever known anyone in the military, um, they rehearse and practice at nauseum to the point that I can tell you uh, that it gets very tedious and boring and repetitive and you're thinking, why in the world do we have to do this again? We have moved that box 30 different times. You can't move it again because when stress comes, when the hardships come, it's going to, you're going to sort of muscle memory will kick in and so we want to be trained to muscle memory and so... As we are looking at this letter to Hebrews, what he is trying to do, this author is encouraging, trying to remind this church of who Christ is. And even in the words of the song that we just sang, we see the challenge, I believe, of the Christian life. We says, we crown him Lord of all. We sang those words. And, and, and my hope is that as you sang those words, as we sang those words together, that was something in our hearts and minds that we were saying, yes, Lord, we crown you Lord of our lives. And then we cry to the Lord, make my heart believe. Which is it? Do we crown him Lord of all? Is he the Lord over our lives and sovereign over all things? And do we trust and believe that? Or do we need him to help us to believe that that is true, that he is Lord of all? And the answer is yes. We need both. Because this life is hard. It's filled with challenges. It is a broken, sinful world. And as a result of that, there's a problem. 
which is why we have Jesus. And we need our hearts to believe. And we need, we need to be reminded of just how great Jesus is. This is why we began our scripture reading in Numbers, looking at just a very small little, uh, it's sort of out of context, I realize, as we read that. But this descriptor that's given to Moses, or the way that Moses is sort of looked at in this, that text, uh, the, to catch you up very briefly, what we read there is God is sort of rebuking Aaron and Miriam for not paying proper respect to their brother, Moses. Uh, so moms, just know that when you rebuke your children for not paying proper respect to their siblings, you're just following the Lord. And as such, so God is rebuking them for not doing that. And what he reminds them of is the greatness of Moses. And he does that by describing how he has communicated with the prophets of old. I communicated with all the prophets. All that you know about me, very much about what you know about me at least, is through the prophets. And I spoke to them through visions and dreams. I spoke to Moses. He uses a strange descriptor, but he says mouth to mouth, which essentially means face to face. He didn't give Moses CPR. He spoke to him face to face. Nobody else I spoke to face to face. Honor Moses. Moses was my chosen vessel to be used by me to redeem my people out of slavery in Egypt and to draw them in, to form them into a people. Moses should be held in high regard. And so now as we come to the author of Hebrews, and he is addressing a church that their foundation as Jewish Christians, they would have been sort of built their theology and their understanding about God completely on Moses because he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so this is the bigness of Moses. But what this letter reminds us of is, as he has done sort of continuing in these first couple of chapters, let me tell you how great Jesus is. You thought the angels were powerful? You thought I used the angels? They have, yes, they're all, but to them I did not bestow upon them the glory and honor forever. I did not make the enemy their footstool. That's Jesus. And here in chapter 3, he turns his attention to Moses. And he's dealing again, keep this constantly in our minds, this idea of persecution, challenge, burden. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. I know you all are great Bible scholars. You've been trained to do this. When you see that word, therefore, you know that we look backwards. And what he's building his argument upon is the ending of chapter 2, where in verse 18, he sort of summarized it in this way. For because he himself, that's Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus was tempted, was like us, fully man, dealt with all of the temptations and the challenges of living in this world, in this life, as a man... He is familiar with everything that we deal with. He is not distant. He is aware even of the temptations and the challenges that you face. Don't ever tell yourself, well, I'm the first one that's ever dealt with this issue because I assure you that you're not. Don't ever tell yourself that Jesus isn't aware and can't comprehend what you're going through because he very much can. That's what that scripture tells us. He is a, a, acutely aware of all of the challenges that you face, but he suffered through those Perfectly, He endured. And so therefore, because of this, because that's who Jesus is, holy brothers. This is the first thing that we get to, uh, indication that we get of who he's speaking to here as the church. 
He's not speaking to people who are far from God, who don't know who God is, who have rejected God or anything like that. Here, he is speaking to Christians because he describes us as holy brothers. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And as he's reminding them of the challenges of life or how to deal with those challenges, we see that the first thing he says is to remember your calling. He reminds them of who they are. If you think about suffering and what happens when we suffer and that sort of default position that we go to, one of the other things that can very often happen to us is this sort of laser-like focus. We get very attentive We've all heard the story since it's Mother's Day. We've heard the story of these super moms that lift cars off of their children or do these miraculous works to save their kids from harm or anything like that. And those are very real stories, real things that happen. Yes, somewhat miraculous, but also it's because the human body and the mind can focus acutely to one thing and every bit of her human power, mind power, everything is focused on saving her child, protecting her child. Some of you, y'all love that term. You're the mama bears. You've got shirts that say it. (laughs) Protecting the cubs. And so when we face these challenges, we can get laser-like focus. Can you imagine as we face challenges, deal with the very real circumstances of life, hardships that come our way, if we had a laser-like focus It didn't cause us to be distracted. It didn't cause us to lose hope, but it caused us to have a laser-like focus, much like that mom would have protecting her child, a laser-like focus on eternity. Can you imagine what life would be like if when we face challenge, we said, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who share in an eternal life, Remember that when you face hardships. This is one of our greatest weaknesses. We're all plagued by it. I am as well. That we so quickly take our eyes off Jesus. When something begins to challenge us, when we face hard times, what are we tempted to do? We look inward. We try to figure it out on our own. And the culture affirms us in doing that. Follow your heart. You've heard me say this many times. Do not follow your heart. It is a deceitful pit of lies. Follow Jesus. But the culture and everything in us, when we face these hard things, says, look inward. You can do this on your own. And that's not how we make our way through the hardships of this life. That will not help you. You might last for a season, for a few moments, but if you want to endure, he says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, remember that heavenly calling. Remember what Christ has purchased for you. Again, just imagine in your everyday life, in the hard conversations that you might have to have at some point, when there's something facing you, maybe there's been a personal attack, there's some some challenge in front of you, brokenness in a relationship, in marriage, in professional life, and whatever those things, whatever you're walking through right now, sickness even, those painful things. Imagine if we were able more quickly and more readily to remember our heavenly calling, to take a deep 
breath and just breathe in and remind ourselves we are citizens of an eternal kingdom of God, a kingdom that cannot be broken, a kingdom that will not ever fall, the only kingdom that will last for all eternity. We are citizens of that kingdom through our Savior Jesus. We are co-heirs with Christ. This is our heavenly calling. And if we, in the face of all those hard circumstances, whatever might be coming at us, if we pause for a moment and we were able to remember that calling on our lives, again, not to do, but almost to just sit and rest, and this is what Jesus has for us. This is the calling on our lives. Can you imagine what our actions might look like flowing out of that? If we paused, remembered our eternity, remembered that you cannot die, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we acted out of that. And so, because we have a Savior who is familiar with our suffering, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, remember that calling. And then he says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, this Jesus that is perfectly aware of all the temptations that we face. Now, when we read that word, consider Jesus, I know that it sounds uh, somewhat like uh, uh, an option, something that you'd like to present to someone. Kind of sounds like, you know, I know we have a few realtors in the room. It's consider this option. This, this is a beautiful house. Or maybe consider this one. Which one, which one would you like? Or if, I, I don't know if you've been to the eye doctor lately, but you know my eye doctor, I love him. And he's one or two. Two or one. Consider. Just consider which one allows you to see better. But let me just tell you, that is not the language that is used here. This word consider there is, a, is, a, it is in a sense, it's a command. And it's a command that better translated would say, fix your eyes on or look closely. I can tell you that, as you know, because I, I have a degree that says I can. <laughs> By the way, I tell you how often I'm a train wreck. I now have a GPA to prove that fact, all right? So <laughs> don't go too far with that praise. But look closely at Jesus, he says. Considered, again, not an option, but look closely. Focus your attention on Jesus. Fix your thoughts even on Jesus. This high calling on your life purchased through Christ. This is one of the great gifts of my mom. You know, my mom, she taught me as a teacher to read and write, but after that, I don't really remember my mom teaching me much. She didn't teach me how to change the oil, how to skin a deer, how to, you know, navigate anywhere, how to take pictures. She, she didn't teach me a lot of things. There not a lot of actions that I can call back on and say, this is my mom taught me how to do this. But I can tell you what my mom did teach me. She taught me to fix my eyes on Jesus. In good times and suffering, of which she had many, many moments of, 
to fix my thoughts, my attention, my eyes on Jesus. Mothers and fathers in the room, there's no higher calling on your lives than to make disciples through your children by helping them fix their eyes on Christ. Hard things will come. You can help them a little bit, but you'll help them most if in the hard things they remember to fix their eyes on Jesus. And this is what he tells us to do. He tells this church, this small little house church, and now by extension all believers for all time to fix our eyes on Christ. And as we do that, those lesser things, as we sometimes sing, will grow strangely dim as Christ is elevated in our hearts and our minds, as our attention is on who he is and what he has done and what he has purchased for us, which he gets to in terms of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. As he describes him, there's this comma there, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We confess Jesus is our high priest, and he is an apostle. This is the only time in the New Testament, by the way, that Jesus is referred to as an apostle, and it's a strange way to refer to Jesus, you know, because the apostles were those that were sent out by Jesus, right? The 12 disciples that he sent out to go to the nations and to the world and to bring his message of hope to all people. Those are the apostles, but he uses this title to refer to Jesus, to describe him as the one who was sent by God to us. God sent Jesus We confess that Jesus came to us. We didn't go to God. Jesus came to us. And as we fix our eyes on him and our thoughts are attentive to who Jesus is, we remember that God in all of our messed up, all of that brokenness, he sent his son to us. He didn't ask us to come to him. He didn't say, figure it out and then you can come to me. He didn't say, hey, you can go to that party after you get your room cleaned. He said, come on, I'm coming to you. He was the one who was sent. Jesus was sent by God to us. And then he is our high priest. He is the means through which we come to the Father. Sent by God to us so that through him we might be brought to God. That's who Jesus is. The apostle and the high priest. This is why later in the New Testament Jesus is referred to as the one mediator. A priest in this Old Testament days, as you know, we just finished the book of Joshua. The priests would go and make sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for the sins of the people. And they would have to continually do this over and over again. And then Jesus came. And as chapter 1 describes Jesus, they said he is the great high priest who, after making atonement for sin, sat down at the right hand of the Father. And as he sat down, finishing and and proving and, and testifying to the fact that God accepted his sacrifice for us completely. It was finished, paid in full. All the sins have been paid for. And so now, we now no longer have priests that we have to to go between God and us. There's now one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We come to the Father through Jesus. That is who Jesus is. That is his bigness. And so, we fix our eyes on this Jesus who was sent by God to us so that he might be the mediator between us and God through his sacrificial death on a cross. Then he turns and he brings up Moses finally. Jesus 
was the one who was faithful, faithful to God. God had appointed him. And it says at the end of verse 2, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And here we have to remember that this author is making an argument to people who might not understand, who have some ways lost their hope in that finished work of Jesus. And they're reverting back to the law which Moses gave them. And so what he's doing here by bringing Moses in, and we read from Numbers that Moses was very highly revered. God himself said and told us to revere Moses, told these people to revere him. Here he says, but Moses was faithful. You think Moses was faithful? And as you think of Moses, I know that that, that sort of takes your mind to he's the greatest, the greatest of all time. Well, Jesus is the one who is greater than Moses. Just as Moses was faithful, and he's not diminishing Moses when he says that. He's not saying that Moses was not faithful and that Moses was, it should not be revered by these people. But no, Jesus is greater. This is where he goes in verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So here he describes as he's applying this to Moses and helping us understand this argument that he's making that Moses is greater, or Jesus is, excuse me, greater than Moses, is that Moses is the, the one, in a sense, is, is the house. He is what God established. But Jesus is the one who builds the house. The builder of the house is the one who is revered, who is worthy of honor. Moses was faithful in what God had called him to do and to be. But he was not the builder. He was not the source. The law that Moses wrote, that these people were falling into some of the ceremonial laws of Jewish culture, or we might even apply to our day where we sort of lend towards some legalism and sort of this is how we approach God, this is what we must do to be right with God, this is how we sort of clean ourselves up or come into the presence of God. Any of those things, he's saying, the one who created those things is worthy of much more glory and honor than the thing itself. And what are we so often tempted to do? We put the thing above the creator. This action, if I just do this, God will accept me. If I don't do this, God will accept me. If I follow these steps in this program, if I jump in here, do this or that, God will accept me. And what he's saying here is, none of those things necessarily are inherently evil until they replace Jesus. When they become the means through which you think you are making your way to God, you now have a new mediator. You believe that you are mediated to God through fill in the blank. And that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus, now as the final mediator, is superior to the law. He is superior to Moses in all that Moses told us and how we relate to God. And so he is worthy of more glory. He continues in verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of the house of all things, excuse me, is God. Now, in verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house 
as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was faithful, and he was faithful as a servant. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was merely a servant, used by God to serve God's people, to establish them in so many different ways. But Jesus Christ, he is the son of God. Not just a servant, but a son. And where Moses, again, was a faithful servant and did all that God called him to do, at least almost, He wasn't perfectly obedient. Jesus is the one as a son who was perfectly faithful and obedient to the Father. And it was out of that perfect obedience to the Father that he was the rightful and the only proper sacrifice when he laid down his life on the cross because he was perfectly obedient as the son. So as we think about how we navigate through this life, a life that is so filled often with challenges and hardships. Let's remember who we look to. We don't look inwardly. We don't look to try and figure things out on our own. I'll confess to you, this is often my temptation. When there's a challenge in front of me, whether it's personal, in just, uh, just, just, just Ryan and God alone, whether it's with my family, my wife, my children, whether it's with many of you as a church, whether it's with our elder team as we're trying to navigate whatever God might be calling us to do, whether it's the culture and the world and how we, uh, we bring the hope of Christ into this broken place and all of these things, there are times when I can be tempted to rely on my own ingenuity, my own wisdom, my own training, my own experience, my relationships, all of these things that are in some ways, good gifts from God to be used for his glory. And what Jesus is reminding us of through this text is that, yes, some of those things may be good, but I am greater than all of those. You look to me. Look to me to find the means and the path and the how, yes, but more than that, look to me, the one who will sustain you through those things. Because at the end of the day, I don't know if you've noticed this, but whatever problem I might solve on Monday, there is more than likely going to be a new one on Tuesday. And then Tuesday at 10 a.m., I get that one solved. And at 470, 470, I can't even tell time. (laughs) 452, there's a new one. Some of you have reached 472. <laughs> this, that, that's life, friends. And yet, we are a people who have joy in the midst of suffering. We are sustained through broken situations. We even make it to the end. Because we look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Keep your attention on Jesus. All that Moses had to offer 
Jesus was the fulfillment of it all and was bigger than it all. And so Jesus invites you in to look closely. And here's how this verse closes. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. We are his house. He is faithful over us. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We hold fast to Jesus. We boast in Jesus. That's the message. That's what sustains us and gives us life. As our worship team comes to lead us and to close our time together, we're going to sing one of my favorite hymns. I've told you this many times before. Matt will sing this at my funeral. He can't die first. I just said that. (laughs) But it's a reminder of the power of Jesus where we will sing of Jesus' grip on our lives. These words, he will hold me fast. And what a, a glorious reminder that as you walk through the trials and the hardships, the circumstances of this life, that Jesus has you in his grip and that grip cannot be broken. It cannot be. And so let our boasting be in Jesus who holds us in the palm of his hand, who is faithful over his house and will sustain his house and care for his house and clean his house up until he presents us to the Father and says, these are mine. Welcome, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Let's remember that as we sing. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.